Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, a weekly podcast brought to you by the editorial team at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. The new Suzuki V-Strom 1050 has just been announced and Avery Innes, training and publications manager from Suzuki Motor USA, is just the expert to explain its nuances to us. The V-Strom has always been a superb yet inexpensive platform and the new DE variant gets more serious about ADV riding. I find out from Avery whether the new upgrades are actually worthwhile and the place that the new V-Strom has in the current market. Our second segment, friend, covers a subject that's a little more serious than usual. Many veterans and first responders suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, a.k.a. PTSD. Scott Casey, himself a sufferer, decided to try and help his fellow vets, and he started a cross-Canada charity ride in 2016. He called it the Rolling Barrage. It was, and is, incredibly successful. It's not just a tremendous ride. The Rolling Barrage is a place for like-minded sufferers and their supporters to ride together. They get some serious wind therapy, whether it's on just a stop or a leg of the ride, one day, a weekend, or even if they cover the whole ride. Scott opens up with associate editor TJ Adams about his personal history, how he came to create such a brilliant and worthy real-world event that truly helps. The Rolling Barrage is a supportive network of brothers and sisters. To quote Scott Casey, this is the family you never knew you had. We hope you enjoy this episode. I think there was probably a 90-day period when the bike first came out where people were trying to kind of get their, their head around, what is this thing? We understand some of the European markets, so when we say trailie, we understand what that is, but it's it's a it's frankly a pavement-oriented big enduro bike, and um, Suzuki's had other bikes in that market like the uh, the Free Wind and stuff like that, which is based on the the DR650. But that bike never was here. But the V-Strom is quite simply a, a big trailer, and it just works so good. I'm not an off-road guy, as you know, so I, I really have only ridden the V-Strom on the street. But, my God, it works so well as a street bike. It, it certainly does, yes. So, so what, is, what really is different about this new V-Strom, and, and where do you see it being placed in the market? Well, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, the, the, the previous bikes that we had over the last couple of years, um, we began to... St- began to see a little bit of a separation between what what a base v-strom would be and then then a bike that would have more off-road capability and that was with the uh, xt models so 2020 when we we got the new 1050s what you saw there was there was a base model bike that was kind of like the outgoing 1000 and then the new 1050 xt had tubeless spoke style wheels and things like that, but it still used a 19, 17 inch tire combination and stuff like that. So while it was comfortable taking down a, a dirt road or a gravel road, 
it wasn't quite as as a serious off-road capable bike as, as some other adventure bikes might be. So now with the 23 V-Strom 1050s, you're seeing a little bit more separation. Plus, um, you know, with, with the DE, you know, with the 21 inch front tire, but there's a lot more to that bike than just a 21 inch front tire. And then you're seeing on the the 1050, you're also seeing a lot more features coming to the base bike for the people that are that, those diehard V-Strom folks that have been with that bike since the first generation in, in 02, where they're really buying that bike as a sports tour or, or just even a touring bike that they can ride in all kinds of different conditions. and. Sure. And but they're not necessarily attacking it or attacking their riding like an adventure bike. You know, they're they're like ninety five percent pavement with an occasional dirt road thrown in. But the DE was is really a nice, pleasant supply surprise for the industry and our Suzuki dealers, in project in particular, because um, when the motorcycle received a lot of updates in 2020 that really modernized the bike and what you're seeing now with the 23 that continues that trend so you know just starting with some of the the more simple stuff that folks may not have noticed because of everybody's going ooh 21 inch front tire um the engine now has um sodium filled exhaust valves and it doesn't sound like a big deal until you realize that helps control combustion chamber temperature. And controlling temperature is really important to make sure you're maintaining a stable combustion. And that means you can control engine performance and emissions and things like that. So uh, what seems to be a modest change is actually an important change to the bike. And then um, along with the bike's expanded off-road capabilities, they revised uh, the first and the sixth gear gear ratios in the transmissions that way there's better spacing so if you're if you're riding off-road because when you're riding off-road you may want to run out first and second gear more than you might on a a street bike and um, then the other thing too is it is they looked at all of the shift mechanisms and all those things to make sure it worked really well with the bi-directional quick shifter which was added and um, I know that you've ridden the S1000 and the S1000 GT with a wonderful quick shifter on that bike. This is basically that same architecture. And on my Jix 1000 as well. Suzuki gearboxes are always absolutely just seamless feeling. So the quick shifter works really well. When you consider that my Jixer is now something like four years old, um, <laughs> You know, I'm sure they've made sort of upgrades to the software and various things. So actually, I'm sure it's even better, but I had no complaints with it. The biggest difference between between your bike and the new generation of quick shift stuff that Suzuki is doing is um, your bike still uses a plunger style switch on the, the shift link rod. And sure. it works pretty good, pretty good in there. And if you build it with precision, you'll minimize the I'll say the feeling of play that you might feel when you shift. But when we did the S1000 in the GT and now the V-Stroms, they use a shift position switch that goes right on the end of the shift shaft. 
that comes out of the engine. So when you're shifting it, the linkage is directly attached to the shift shaft. And then that, that it's kind of a rotary style switch is paying attention to the shift moment, uh, movement. It's very precise, but it doesn't add any play or any extra forces uh, doesn't need to be required to, for the shift mechanism to understand what's going on. That plus some really nifty programming uh, by the engineers, it just works. It's smooth and, and butter-like. It's, it's an incredible experience to ride it. And, and I've been very pleased to see how the media and the industry has responded to it. Yeah, Nick wrote the GT recently, and he said that he said the quick shifter was an absolute revelation. Yeah. So it's it's uh, clearly technology marches on, and and Suzuki have have, uh, have done it really right. It sounds to me as though the engine has is pretty much the same as it as it was, but it's had a couple of you know significant little changes to it. But no, there's nothing really major to it. There's a couple other things that have that aren't necessarily huge things, but but they help quite a bit. And one of the other things is they've um, they've enhanced the programming and the the tension the rider feels at the throttle grip to so the feedback on what the rider is sensing when they operate the the uh, throttle grip because it is a ride by wire. Um, electronic throttle assembly. It's it's much more in line with with a true, you know, throttle that's connected via cables to throttle bodies or or carburetors. So that feedback is there too. So that's all kind of all these things that seem incremental all kind of pile together. I'll have to take your word on that one because I gotta say I had no complaints on the previous one. So maybe there's somebody with a more sensitive throttle hand than I that will <laughs> That will have this giant sort of light bulb moment and go, oh, finally they fixed that heinous throttle, but, but I'm not one of them. Well, yeah, it, it's an interesting response because it, you know, to me, I didn't perceive anything with it either. But but it, it's definitely supposed to offer more feedback. They made the throttle feel a little better. Great. Yeah, that's uh, answered the question that nobody asked. <laughs> yeah. And we'll we'll talk a little bit more about electronics, but but let's focus on the DE for a minute because that's definitely the motorcycle that's that's gotten everybody's attention. Okay. And we we've seen other other bike builders say, oh, to be a proper adventure bike, she needs to have a 21 inch front tire, and that's that's a really a shortcut. If you you just can't throw a 21 inch front tire on the bike and expect the bike to behave properly and really take advantage of, of that change. Of course. So, you know, work was done to the to the front suspension to increase its length, but then to change the internal damping and the spring rates and things like that to to work with the 21 inch front tire, not to mention you're going to see a lot different loads. It's, it's going to be a more dynamic thing when you ride a bike like this off road than riding on the pavement. And then um, same thing with the swing arm, the swing arm length was increased. Um, and it was and it was made more rigid, and they also made some additional changes to the subframe to increase its strength. You know things like the battery box brackets and how the seat attaches, and the seat now attaches directly firmly to the subframe, uh, uh, so it so you have a really good feeling when you're riding riding the bike off road. 
so you know there's so there's adjustments in the rake and trail of, of the bike so it works with this different geometry but the most important thing is the bike gained about an inch more ground clearance and a little bit more suspension travel and that's with having that 21 inch uh, front tire in the front so okay it's not just a 21 inch front tire the bike has been upgraded the de has been upgraded to work better in off-road situations so not stopping there they they also looked at the electronics the suzuki intelligent ride system which is the name that we apply to our suite of rider aids um, on our premium motorcycles like the hayabusa and, and things like that so sirs uh, which is how we we usually refer to the the that suite of rider aids um, pretty much encompasses some some straightforward things, traction control, and in some cases ABS and whatnot. Um, then on the DE, there's some significant changes to that. So the it still has the three power levels that you can adjust how the engine responds, you know, and it's usually how aggressive the acceleration will be. It's not changing peak power. Peak power is always there. It's just how aggressive the acceleration will be. The, so in the traction control on the DE and the DE Adventure models, um, you get an additional mode in the traction control. So you have what works out to be instead of four modes, you count off as one of the modes. You have five. And so you have like one, two, three, and then you know you have off, but then there's a new one called gravel. So it's, it's an actual G that appears on the uh, new TFT dash. Ooh, interesting. Uh, we have a wonderful uh, new TFT dash on the motorcycle. And that changes the ignition timing and the throttle response that will help the rider um, be able to spin or cavitate the rear tire to enhance riding situations off-road. And if you've ever ridden a, a larger dual sport bike or an adventure bike off-road, you will ride it much differently in a much more dynamic way than, than a lighter bike. So being able to spin the rear tire to initiate a, a turn or, or do something to, to help it uh, negotiate an even tighter off camber situation really, really will help. And then on the same thing with the ABS, um, the V-Strom models, the 1050s were already unique where they had a two level uh, sensitivity setting for the ABS where you could have, you know, basically a regular ABS response, and then you could have a more sensitive response. So you could kind of tailor how the ABS was responding to the conditions you were riding in, and then frankly, your own personal riding habits. So now what you can also do on the DE and the DE Adventures is you can take ABS and you can switch off the rear ABS. So you still have the convenience and you could you could say the safety feature of having that front ABS still in place. But um, with it off in the back, you can kind of trail break into situations and things like that. Once again, you can ride the bike in a more dynamic way to get it to go around tight corners and things like that. So those changes that that I just kind of went over quickly it all translates into not just changing the bike's character, but changing the bike's character to suit more off-road use than before. 
Sure. And the bike looks great. When you when you see the images of the two bikes side by side, you can see there's a taller stance to the DE. Um, it uses a, uh, a fender and fork protector combination that's, that's frankly kind of reminiscent of what you see on an RMZ uh, 450 motocrosser. It, it's got the chops. It looks like, hey, this, this bike's got some off-road chops to it. Um, and then, um, so it's obviously using a spoke style front wheel, you know, with a with a 21 inch hoop. And then the back wheel is a is a 17, but they also changed um, how the spokes lace to the rear rim. So if you've ever seen the XT wheel, it kind of uses a pair of shoulders towards the middle of the rim that the spokes attach to. In the case of the DE and the DE Adventure, the spokes no, now come from the outermost edge of the rim. So they're adding some strength and some torsional rigidity to that wheel because once again, more dynamic forces riding off-road. Sure. Um, and and that, rear, that rear wheel um, is tubeless. And, and that's a good choice because usually if you, if you catch an object that causes a puncture or something, it happens in the back. It, whether you're off-road or on pavement, your front tire kicks up whatever nail or silly object gets you and it puts it in the back. So that's, and you don't want to take a big tire off in the middle of the trail and all that stuff. So that's the one you can plug pretty easily and, and be on your way. But 21, uh, but the 21 inch front uses a tube style rim. And that way they can use a rim that's really strong just to support the, the type of riding the bike is not going to experience more. And if you've ever had to change a 21 inch inner tube on the front of a dirt bike, it's really easy. I mean, you're basically able to break the bead with your hand. So um, if you do have to deal with a tube, you, you want to deal with with the front, it'll be nice and straightforward. An easy one, right? Okay. Yeah. That seems to make real sense now. Okay. Yeah, it, there's there's logical choices behind all of this. The thing I'm waiting for you to talk about is the suspension. Have they done anything with the suspension? Yeah. Well, the in the in the back, the shock absorber is is nearly identical to the shock absorber on that already existed on the 1050, and it's it it uses a hydraulic remote preload and you it does have some damping force adjustment um, so that shock performed well and it's got you know the different swing arm and and i believe the cushion levers are different i don't know that for certain but they appear to be in uh, some of the materials i was looking at but they did get more rear suspension stroke more rear wheel travel with it but um, the architecture of the shock is, is practically identical, but the front fork is definitely changed, um, definitely uh, to match the, the performance uh, you're going to get with that 21 inch uh, front wheel. And, and we're using a new um, Dunlop Adventure tire that's a little bit more aggressive than what's on the um, base 1050. It's not quite a 50-50 tire, um, but you want to make sure that the bike is supplied with a tire that is a good, that will perform well on pavement. Because a lot of folks, they'll, they'll buy the bike for looks. They may not necessarily ride it to its capability. I mean, you know, you see that with some of the 
folks you encounter on track day, track days. So um, sure. yeah, but it but it's going to be easy to to put uh, a more aggressive dot uh, adventure style tire on there. The the front fender has got adequate room when you put a more aggressive tire on it. Same thing with the back. There's room there in the swing arm. So they're looking at the stuff and taking it into account. And, and one of the areas of wisdom that's very obvious is they, they put an aluminum uh, engine protector on it. You know, a lot of people would call it a skid pan or a bash plate or whatnot. And uh, it, it's there to protect the, the bottom of the, the engine and things like the oil filter and stuff like that. Because it's not necessarily whether you hit something when you're off-road, but you know, you'll throw debris up, up on the engine and stuff like that. And um, I was looking how they did the fasteners and they did a real nice job of keeping the fasteners away from possible damage, but they also making it easy to remove so you could service the bike or your dealer could easily service the bike for you. So okay. a lot of stuff here and there went into it. The handlebar is wider. Um, it's about uh, 40 millimeters overall wider than the other one. And they actually used a different type of aluminum, aluminum that isn't quite as rigid. It, and what that does is that offers some vibration damping characteristics and things like that. Because, you know, on, on a lot of bikes where you'll see a, a fat style um, tapered aluminum handlebar on it, it it's almost a, an appearance thing. But on an off-road bike, you're looking to not only quell road vibration, you're looking to quell vibrations that's coming through the suspension to your, through the handlebar to your hand. So, so going with a softer material to create that uh, handlebar, that's going to, to damp vibration to the rider's hands. You know, it's one thing doing a 500-mile day. It's another thing doing 300 miles of it off-road. <laughs> so you'll come to appreciate yeah, that. Com little comfort things like that so um yeah they and then when you look at when you look at the adventure version of the de which adds the 37 liter aluminum panniers that are quick release and all of that stuff and then the led fog lamps it all looks right you know you see it's got aluminum panniers it's got aluminum skid plate it's got you look at the raw color of the fuel tank under the body covers it it's the same silver aluminum finish um you can tell that hey this this bike as a whole package is ready to ride oh. pavement or or off-road so in terms of where it's positioned in the market i i assume just simply because it's a suzuki that it's extremely competitively priced suzuki are second to none at just putting out you know really decent motorcycles at a sensible price motorcycles work and work well at a price we can all afford yeah motorcycle value is an important thing you know there's a, there's a lot of things that you know when i look at a motorcycle whether it's one of ours or, or another competitor i look at you know how does the how does the vehicle look how does how's its performance and then what type of value is it are those first two things coming at a price along with reliability that's better than the rest of the market. And, and that is an area where Suzuki really holds a lot of good cards. Um, the bike, um, it's, its competitors are, are heavyweight adventure bikes, but 
not the extreme heavyweight bikes where the prices have gotten ridiculous in the size. You know, you look at a an R1250 GSA, and it's like, man, how do you ride that baby down the trail? <laughs> well, there are guys out there that can do it. I'm, I'm, I cannot. Yeah, I, I, I have friends that have, and and it's kind of like, well, I'm, I'm happy that you can <laughs> do it, but I'm kind of like, why? I don't want to say the V-Strom has a niche, but it does have a unique spot because it's not in that 1200 cc upper mega. Um, adventure category, but it's also not a midsize either. So it's not a 800 or smaller. So it's a little more than a midsize, yep. but not one of the giant behemoth kind of things that that really, frankly, can be too much. Right. That's actually a really, that's a really neat, neat little slice. Yeah. And and is it is it priced accordingly? Well, we have not announced a price yet, and, oh. and that'll. That'll that'll come um, in the next couple months as the dealers begin to order. But I am I would be willing to bet it's going to be. I don't was don't want to say inexpensive, but Suzuki are really good. Well, I, I look at the GT that you guys produced earlier this year or last year, and the Suzuki are really good at just producing everyman motorcycles that work really well for guy for the real world. Yeah, that's that value thing I was talking about. It, it, I'm always proud to talk to somebody about a bike, and then you know you reveal, oh, by the way, this thing's three grand less than its closest competitor, and it's got a better reliability history. So that's that's a real good one. Right. And definitely the DE and the DE Adventures are the stars. But but I also wanted to point out the 1050, the the uh, yeah, sure. DL 1050 or V-Strom 1050. Because um, what we wanted to make sure is all of those loyal V-Strom folks that were out there and, you know, like I've, I've had every generation, you know, I had an O2 and all the way up and you, a lot of folks like me, I, I love the ergonomics of the bike. I love that it's a Swiss army knife type of tool. I can do anything I want with the bike. But I primarily ride that bike on the street. You know, I got my other dual sports and things that, that I ride off-road. And so so when I saw the 1050, the information on the 1050 for the first time, I was exceptionally happy because all of those folks that wanted that bike, like I said earlier, that, hey, this is really more of an alternative sports tour right but a real commonsensical bike whether you commute on it or you you do uh long distance riding with it or you just have one bike in the garage and this is the one it should be is the v-strom this bike is it so in 2020 when the the 1050 came out it didn't have as many features as the other bike it was still an incredibly good bike with an incredibly good price point but folks were like, well, I'd like to get this that the XT has and that. So, so frankly, they, at the same time, the DE was getting upgrades, the 1050 was getting upgrades. So it now has a CAN uh, style wiring harness and you need the CAN style wiring harness so you can transmit a lot of data around the motorcycle to all the other features like it has it has the bi-directional quick shifter on it. It has cruise control on it. It has uh, traction control that you can adjust on the fly. It has power levels you can adjust on the fly. 
Um, it remembers the last setting that that you set the cruise control or the or the traction control on. It also has a lean sensitive ABS system. Oh, really? Okay. Our term for it is the uh, motion track anti-lock brake and, and combined braking system. So it's not just adjusting brake pressure on the front or back based upon how, how fast you're going or where you're leaning, but it also pays attention to the up and down pitch of the bike. Okay. So like if you're, if you're nosing too deep into a corner, it, it may relieve some front brake pressure and add it to the back so you can maintain tracking through that corner nice and smooth and stuff like that. So like a GSXR, like your GSXR in particular, it knows, hey, this, these adjustments at this speed, this gear, this, yeah. these, these settings are going to help Arthur get through that corner as, as smooth as possible. It helps the bike maintain the line. So the bike has height adjustable seat. Oh, really? That's, that's impressive. Okay, I like that. Yeah, you can adjust the windshield. There's a quick release lever on the front of the windshield that can go up and down. Um, when you look at the bike, the biggest thing you notice is it has cast wheels. Interesting. Comparatively to the spoke style wheels, and it's a 1917 combination, which works really good for a bike like this. Uh, that's primary use is, is pavement. Yeah, mainly for the street, for sure. Yeah, and and I'm not surprising anybody by this, but that's the bike I, I want to get because <laughs> I have a V-Strom that is an uh, everyday rider and I throw a lot of miles on them. So um, my bike is going to have 70,000 on it sooner or later. So it'll be time to get a new one um, when these become right. available. But um, once again, I'm upgrading it because it's not because it needs it, even with all that mileage on it. It's just that I want the Farkles. I want the extra features and things that the new bike brings. I, I think I think these upgrades are definitely worth it. It brings yeah. the bike. It brings a much loved, extremely well-performing bike. But really, honestly, and I'm not just saying it, I was really impressed with it. The, uh, the V-Strom I rode a couple of years ago, I really didn't want to hand it back. The, these significant upgrades, they might not sound like they're huge, but I think they are very useful and people will like them. Our company is always very careful when they apply changes. We make sure that the engineering is going to be sound and, sure. and it's going to help the bike perform, but, but it, it, they can't, they won't do things for silly reasons. There's, there's always no. good sound logic behind the, the business and engineering decisions that the company makes. And people that have been loyal to the brand are exactly why, because they're loyal to the brand. You know, those great transmissions you were talking about, the reliability of the engine, that's all part of the equation because that reliability. The user-friendly chassis, I mean, just from day one, I mean, back from the mid seventies, the Suzuki's that I was, I was riding always had just the right kind of chassis. I mean, they just, you know, I mean, back in the days before the Japanese really figured out how to make a, a motorcycle handle. <laughs> The Suzuki still handled very well. That reliability is is as important a feature as anything else. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, the only missing piece of the jigsaw is to find out how sensible that these things are going to be priced. And I have every confidence that the numbers will be will be uh, in line with what people are hoping. 
Yeah, I, I, I believe that too. And I don't have any special secret information on pricing. I, I just have the confidence that, you know, I've seen them make very good pricing decisions for three decades. And, and I suspect that'll that. happen here. These, these yeah. bikes will start to arrive um, at dealerships um, probably January, February-ish. So it's not that far away. Okay. Of course, it does rather beg the question of what, what do you think the availability is going to be like? Are the dealers going to be calling up Suzuki and saying, yes, I, I need as many of these as you can supply. And Suzuki say, all right, well, we'll give you one. <laughs> I mean, well, <laughs> do you feel like the supply chain is is easing up a little bit? Well, I can tell you the supply chain is improving. Um, and that's not just our, our company or our industry, but it, it is improving. Well, we're hearing that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's it's still going to take a while before it's perfect uh, again. Yeah, for sure. It's it's like price of gas. It, they drive the price of gas up, you know, two dollars, then they they discount it in dollar and go, look at what we saved you. And you're like, well, wait a minute, it's still a dollar more. So the supply chain kind of messes with you the same way. But um, I, I know that they'll do everything they can. You know, our SMC, our, our parent company, you know, they, they understand that it's a great opportunity when the response is already as good as it is to, to get as many bikes. And Good. I would hate to think that you and I were sitting here talking about vaporware. No, you're pretty confident that that these will be in dealers, and they really will be in dealers. So that that's good. I yeah, yeah, and and you know what? We've been um, very fortunate, and once again, a lot of that is based on a lot of wise people helping develop uh, bikes. If if you look at the last couple of years, you know with with the GSXRs, the new generation 1000s, and then, you know, we have the Hayabusa, and then we redid the S1000, and then added the GT, sure. and now we have this bike. You're starting to see a string of significant successes. Yeah. And uh, I hope it's making everybody understand how committed Suzuki is to the motorcycle uh, industry. Um, we we are. Without question, we are, and and hopefully, you know, when we get to ECMA and other things, um, we'll get the opportunity to see some other things. Um, we always like it when we surprise folks, but a lot of those decisions are really made for sound business reasons. I don't think there's anyone this year who could say that they haven't been surprised by Suzuki. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'm joking, but Suzuki have taken a bit of a PR hit you know, earlier this year, certainly from the racing crowd. My feeling is, is that Suzuki's not going anywhere, but yeah, but as a, as a smaller manufacturer among the Japanese, they, they, um, they make sensible decisions and they make long-term plans. It's a big ship to turn around. Yeah. And they can see, they can see the way things are going in the market and the way things are going for internal combustion engines and for, you know, uh, fossil fuels and and uh, Suzuki's statement that they really want to start looking at at the future. That doesn't mean to say that they're going to abandon what they're doing in the, at, at the moment, but they're clearly making plans for the way things are going to going to start working out in the next five to ten years. And frankly, I I applaud them for doing that. that that's true, and and you know, I'm not professing that I know secret plants or anything like that. But I do understand 
what our company is about. And we're a very uh, diversified and dynamic company. And um, if you've ever had the chance to visit Asia or Japan, and you see that half the cars on the road are Suzuki, you know, just same thing in India, you realize how strong the company really is. And, and people confuse um, our market share for motorcycles with what the company's strength and health is. And yeah. there's a lot of dynamic things happening in what people are now using the buzzword mobility. You know, uh, we got to, that means getting from point A to B and whatnot. And, you know, we have ice engines, you know, internal combustion engines, and then there's a lot of electrification, but people are still looking at other things. But um, when you consider how many people around the world rely on Suzuki for their mobility, whether it's a scooter in Malaysia or a, or a uh, Swift uh, compact car in Japan, there's a lot of things that need to be changed as transportation adjusts to the economy and then the environment. I can fully see that. I understand if you're completely focused on just motorcycles and you can sit there and go, oh, oh my God, you know, the sky is falling. But but no, we, we have to look at the much bigger picture. And uh, yeah. if you actually do some a little bit of research into Suzuki, you can see the company is extremely strong. Yeah. It's fine, I'm sure. Our, our motorcycle stuff has always supported the automotive division. The automotive division has supported motorcycling. Marine has done the same thing with motorcycling and, and autos. We're having tremendous success, especially in North America with our marine products. From one of my, uh, one of my friends is a, is a boat racer. And actually he said that the Suzuki outboard motor is the one to have. And that's, that's acknowledged in the market. I mean, the, the Suzuki uh, marine engines are an absolute runaway success. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited, you know, what we're going to see in the future, because I'm, I'm, I'm expecting positive surprises. <laughs> Good. You know, we're, we're motorcycle guys, we're motorcycle racing enthusiasts, and, and it hurt a little bit, um, you know, because we're going to be leaving um, endurance racing too, uh, probably as a the two-time reigning endurance champion. And what one of the things that I always loved about endurance racing is that really shows the metal of the base bike. That's a production basis uh, series. Sure. So that's basically our GSXR taking on and, and triumphing over the, the rest of the industry. Suzuki have a history of doing that. I mean, in the 70s, you know, the RG500, it came out, it dominated and, and won a couple of championships. In fact, I remember, um, I think it was 1976, where Barry Sheen didn't even bother turning up to the final two, <laughs> two rounds of the championship. He was like, why should I bother? Yeah. <laughs> so, but of course, you know, then they, then they pulled back. Then we had the Schwantz era and we all know what happened and Schwantz took his championship and then they, they pulled out again and, you know, and in the modern era, they've taken the championship and, you know, now they're, they're pulling their horns in and they're coming out for the next thing. And, you know, I, I, I don't know what the time frame will be, but five, 10 years time, they'll come back with another one and they'll win a championship or two and call it good. Yeah. You never know. It could be an E championship. Um, you know, when you look at FIA, they have a pretty robust uh, 
Formula E series, you know, and that could be the future. We 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 need to we need to see. Yeah, we'll we'll see. I mean, it could be it could be uh, you know electric motorcycle racing, and we could all be chasing around on hydrogen fuel cell motorcycles. Well, soon know. It's funny you should mention that because we have built hydrogen fuel cell uh, Bergman scooters that um, surprise you. You may already know this is um, they were used by the London Police Department. I did not know that. Yes, they got they were used in a very practical sense, and that provided a lot of information uh, to, to Suzuki about that type of technology. So um, I, I've always been proud of what the company is and, and what we do. And absolutely, I'm a total motorcycle gearhead. So I, <laughs> I eat these kind of changes up. And likewise, I told I told uh, Hagasan, our, our president, I said, you know, you guys are you guys are making me use up all my retirement money. You know, <laughs> I, I have I, I have to buy a bike pretty much every year because you, you keep coming out with things that I want. So. I mean, to give, to give you an idea, my first water buffalo in 1976, brand new, I think I paid 850 British pounds for it. So, <laughs> so what was the exchange rate back then? Like 1.2, 1.2? I don't know, but it's probably a thousand dollars. I mean, it's like, so times have changed, definitely. Yeah. I forget what I paid for my Jixxer 1100 in 1986. I had one of the very- Oh, the, br- the brick- yeah, Brickside bike. I had the yeah. very first one of the very first Jixxer 1100s in London, and uh, yeah, I was I was considering going for the RG 500, and the dealer said to me, "Streamline motorcycles of Dulwich in South London." I said, oh, "You might want to wait just a little bit. There's something really interesting coming out." And I was like, oh, "You know, the Jixxer <laughs> 750 is pretty cool." Um, I, mean, I, was, yeah. I was like, "Ooh, the 1100 now we're talking." <laughs> so yeah, so I went for that instead of the RG, but I forget what I paid for it. I think it might have been like a couple of grand in, in the eight idea, but yeah, wow. probably not even that. Much. Yeah, the, those motorcycles were revolutionary. I mean, they were game changers, big time. Look at a super sport bike now that doesn't have an aluminum frame. I, I mean, that they, Suzuki always did really, really well with inline four technology, uh, extracting smooth power out of those engines. But then look at that incredible emphasis on weight reduction and handling. That's that's having your cake and eating it too. And you know they revolutionized revolutionized everything again when we came out with a thousand that was basically the same size as seven fifty. So uh, it's it's been a wonderful uh, run and it's going to continue on. You know we're we're not throwing in the towel by any means. I really hope nobody thinks you're throwing in the towel. But it's encouraging to see that Suzuki are keeping keeping up with coming out with new models and they're staying up with technology. And like I say, they're continuing to price their bikes sensibly. And I think they're, they're going to continue keeping their market share. It's all good. Good. Well, I, I'm looking forward to you getting a chance to ride one of these new 2023 1050s. Um, the, the DE is, is really a special creature. Um, I, I suspect there'll be a, a very strong response at the dealership for, for these bikes. I, I think that's going to be more for Don. I mean, I, I'm not an off-road guy, so I'll, I'll take it and ride it around on the street and, <laughs> you know, and tell you that I like it. But, but actually, I think like you, I, I'm probably going to be more of a 1050 guy. 
um you know and just uh but yeah i'll definitely grab one of those off you for sure yeah put it through its paces wonderful right now a lot of us that are of, of english or commonwealth heritage you know we're we have heavy hearts right now because of the queen and long live the king long live the king and um it's um it's a tough time but what a incredible legacy that woman has left behind i mean the idea of a monarch um in any era serving as well as she's she has all of these years and and she was not some um i'm trying to figure out what the proper word is she was she was involved in in the government and she she cared deeply for the people and uh let's hope charles remembers that and live lives up lives up to that too i actually think he will i know there's a lot of people that think he's a bit of a you know a bit of a wally <laughs> Especially with all of the other uh, Camilla stuff that went on. Yeah. I actually met him once. Um, it was in the late 70s and uh, it was at a, at a corporate thing and, and he, he came by and said hello to us all. I didn't shake his hand, but I have to say, I was really impressed with him. Now, yeah. I mean, things have changed a bit since the 70s, but he had this real presence to him. I mean, just his deportment, the way he carried himself, the way he spoke to us, it was... I was at the time I was kind of blown away. I was like, wow, this guy's very, he's very regal. Yeah. If there, if ever there is a regal presence to somebody, he's definitely got it. So, and I think he cares very deeply about, about people. I, I think he cares about the environment. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he cares about the country. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I think he'll be fine. I think he'll be just great. Okay, and, let's, uh, I'll be happy. For for your lips, the God's ears are. Yeah. Hope, yeah. Hope so. You know, there was a apparently at the moment the Queen died. Apparently, there was a double rainbow over Buckingham Palace. Oh my gosh! Really? Yeah. How cool is that? It is. I mean, uh, she, you know, she was up at Belmoral in Scotland. You know, she she loved that. She loved that place. And people that do some research about her can hear about some of the things she did during uh, World War II. And she, she was uh, at least for a while, an avid motorcyclist and on and on and on. She was no wallflower. And uh, really, I did not know that, but that's pretty cool. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's pictures of her on a, on a uh, triumph during World War II. <laughs> really? Well, she was, she was involved with um, motor pool is a simple, term but she was she got involved where the group or whatever they call it she was with they took care of cars and motorcycles and trucks and all that stuff and you know wow. so she began to understand the relationship you need to have to be a, a good motorcycle technician or a car technician or whatever so uh, there's stories of her being out in the middle of somewhere and the land rover dies and she fixes it <laughs> you know that's awesome. Yeah, she was a force of nature, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I just hope hope everything goes smooth with that. Yeah. All right, Avery. Hey, thank you so much. Appreciate it as always. You're welcome. This second segment covers a subject that's a little more serious than usual. Many veterans and first responders suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, aka PTSD. Scott Casey, 
himself a sufferer, decided to try and help his fellow vets, and he started a cross-Canada charity ride in 2016. He called it the Rolling Barrage. It was, and is, incredibly successful. It's not just a tremendous ride. The Rolling Barrage is a place for like-minded sufferers and their supporters to ride together. They get some serious wind therapy, whether it's on just a stop or a leg of the ride, one day, a weekend, or even if they cover the whole ride. Scott opens up with associate editor TJ Adams about his personal history, how he came to create such a brilliant and worthy real-world event that truly helps. The Rolling Barrage is a supportive network of brothers and sisters. To quote Scott Casey, this is the family you never knew you had. Your great-grandfather was part of the Battle of Vimy, the Battle of the Ridge. Yes. That's astounding. Isn't um, it, though? He was wounded, uh, and, and in a, he was wounded in the stomach, shot in the stomach, and uh, managed to survive, which in itself, you know, back in those times, shot in the stomach in probably one of the least sanitary places you could be in and uh and he managed to survive and come home so yeah yeah that would normally be a fatal wound the stomach is absolutely yeah a, a viscous of bleed out area isn't it mm-hmm. and he was one one of relatively few survivors because the, that battle took so many lives it did it did so but it was a. Uh, it was nation building for us, and it was a key turning point for the war as well. I'm going to go there. I haven't been there. I, I highly recommend that if you get a chance. It's absolutely stunning. And this is in Arras, France. Correct. There is a piece of Canada. Yeah, it's it's actually uh, Canadian soil. The French donated it to Canada. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the history. I mean, that battle, as I say, was a turning point for World War One and so many lives lost thousands mm-hmm. yeah millions if you take in the the civilian deaths as well 12 million wow mm-hmm. right it's very humbling the war to end all wars right yes yeah and i fully appreciate that you've been serving yourself you know for the most part of your life is the history of your great-grandfather what inspired you to go into the forces or uh yeah i mean that was a part of it but i i also had a desire to uh, serve the country regardless it's i knew it's what i wanted to be was a soldier it's great to have that that um set path ahead of you that goal to aim for i think that's really something floundered mm-hmm. around not really knowing what i'm doing with my life still <laughs> but you you have achieved so much um and you started your military career age 17 yes where were you based then, or where were you born well i was born in surrey british columbia and i moved up into the interior of british columbia when i was 10 years old and i spent seven years there before i joined the armed forces so we were we went from a fairly large city with you know a school of 500 kids and i went to a one-room school with 14. So it was, a, it was a bit of a shock, yeah, uh, living in the city and then living on a farm, you know, 50 acres and cows and all that kind of stuff. So it was a it was an interesting change in my life and gave me some good foundations for 
being able to look after myself and and so on as I as I joined the army. So one of the interesting things that I try to mention in that is that I signed my first will and testament when I was 17. Yeah, I saw that. Mm-hmm. What was that about? You just well, you had that sort of responsibility in your mind that um... no, we were actually required by the government oh, to to sign to sign a will and testament in case we're killed in in theater. And that that's that's gonna really make you think as a I mean, I say child, what I mean is just so young. I know, mm-hmm. you know, one is an adult from even way before the legal age of 18 in, in so many ways, but that would really um, pinpoint your thinking. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, a bit of a shock. It, it was sobering, you know, for, for mm-hmm. a 17-year-old boy to, you know, sign a will and testament, knowing that, that the reason you're doing that is in the event of your death. <laughs> so I mean we're still we're still so young and new at life and and yet here we are we're writing on a piece of paper signifying our death and now the realization for me that everybody who goes into the armed forces has had to do that yes absolutely and so your military life began um our our listeners are motorcycle people were motorcycles on the horizon then at all oh yeah yeah it's uh <laughs> it's it's been part of my life since I was four days old actually my uh, mother brought me home from the hospital in a receiving blanket and met with my father in the driveway and he was so excited uh, you know to have his new baby boy at home that he put me on the gas tank of his of his Yamaha and catwalked me down 66th Avenue <laughs> <laughs> my mother had a bird of course <laughs> <laughs> yes Precious cargo, indeed. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So uh, you could say I've, I've been I've been involved in motorcycling since I was four days old. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. I didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> most people don't. I mean, that'd be considered child abuse today. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so many things. <laughs> right. So uh, I got my first motorcycle when I was four. It was a Keystone Fifty mini bike. Goodness. Yeah, and I just kept. Uh, kept climbing up the ladder from there and you had space to ride around sort of your your backyard or did you have to go yeah we had a small small lot or a, a fairly big lot for for in the day you know back in the early 70s that's the way to do it because that i think makes makes you such a safer rider because you have the experience sort of in your bones from so young and riding on the rough and that sort of thing yeah, it uh, it definitely gave me a good imprint mm. for what was to come. Yeah, I think it would be fantastic if everybody could have that sort of a start and then indeed start on a motorcycle before even getting into a car because you learn so much, the awareness. and Yeah, well, everything around you and mm. dangers that uh, that befall you if you're not if you're not switched on and paying attention. So how did your career pan out from starting at such a young age? Uh, well, I, I served for just short of 10 years. Uh, and, uh, you know, as, as much as I wanted to go higher in the, in the rank structure, I, I was destined to be a, a corporal. And, you know, it's just the right amount of responsibility where you get to lead, but you have no responsibilities. There's no backlash. Well, congratulations. <laughs> I mean, that's an achievement in itself. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, there was discussions of me moving further up. They were setting me up for for higher ranks and so on. But uh, there are 
politics involved and and so I didn't uh, didn't fit the bill with some of the individuals who didn't want to see me succeed. So they were in control of my career as well. And yeah, I don't have any animosity towards it. It just it's it's part of the game. How many sort of men or men and ladies do you have under you? Oh well, there was none under me. There, I was basically just a, a junior rank, and right. uh, there were opportunities. When I say there's you know abilities to to lead, that was just uh, you'd be able to take out a patrol or do conduct drill or you know different different scenarios. But I wasn't in a position like a sergeant or a, a master corporal warrant officer. You weren't. I wasn't up high enough to actually be in a leadership position. So okay. But because Canadians cross train in everything and we always work on leadership at all levels, you, you always have to be prepared for that battlefield promotion, so to speak. So yes. if, if you're on exercise and you're training, one of the umpires could come up and tap, tap your sergeant on the, sh on the shoulder and say, okay, sergeant, you're dead. And obviously, you know, the next guy in line has to step up and, and take over. So. so you have to be fully trained and fully prepared. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Canada does a does a great job of of cross training its soldiers and leadership, as well as all of the other aspects of the military. You know, functions whether it's map and compass or you know uh, different types of weapons, so on. We're we're cross trained in everything. First aid. That's intense. A lot of people don't realize how much training goes into our soldiers. Yes. Yeah. It's a huge investment as well. But absolutely. Where did you end up going? You didn't stay in Canada, presumably. Where were you posted? Yeah, I, I lived in Canada for five years, and then I moved uh, on to uh, Germany. I was posted to Germany for five years as well. So then that pretty much shored up my career. So during that time while I was in Europe, uh, you know, traveled around, saw different sites, worked at uh, different uh, countries' bases, and we trained there, whether it was with the Americans or the British or the Germans, we were the French, we were all over the place uh, training with them. So it was a very, again, well-rounded bit of training that we received because we we, we trained with a bunch of different NATO countries. Right. Learned their, learned their ways and how to work with them and, and uh, you know, strengthening NATO's resolve. And you saw some action? Yes. Uh, in 1992, in the, in the early spring, uh, our unit, the November Company 3rd Battalion Royal Canadian Regiment was tasked as an augmented company, company strength. So we were augmented to the Royal 22nd Regiment. Uh, they were going as a full battalion-sized battle group, and we augmented them as a fourth company of infantry. So the war in, in the former Yugoslavia started in 1990, and it was quiet. Uh, Slovenia essentially, or sorry, not 1990, 1991, uh, with Slovenia uh, leaving leaving the the former Yugoslavia they broke they were a breakaway state and there was no bloodshed during that but in the spring of 92 uh, that that changed where uh, Croatia was attempting to uh, annex themselves from the rest of Yugoslavia as well and unfortunately there was there was a lot of um, ethnic unrest between the Croats and the Serbs and you know battle broke out and, and of course uh, the United Nations was being pushed into a position where they had to do something about what was going on and with Canada being right there in Europe already uh, our, yes. 
our battle group was selected to go down there. It was a, a couple of days on the train to get there. So we were uh, the quickest um, and most uh, outfitted unit from NATO and, that, and the UN that could deploy. So uh, immediately uh, in late February, early March, we were training uh, intensively and painting our vehicles and getting everything ready. And by uh, the beginning of April, we were all, or sorry, the end of March into, into April, we were loaded on the trains and we were on our way down. So it was, it was pretty fast, uh, uh, fast warm up to get us down there and, and on the ground. Uh, right. Canada was the first ones there. And we looked after all four of the sectors, which covered a, a massive area of territory. And you were there essentially to keep the peace. Yes, uh, you know, we were trying to, uh, you know, alleviate tensions between the Croats and the and the Serbs uh, in Croatia, and specifically in sector south, which is where uh, the the brunt of the you know the 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 battling was going on. When you're in that type um, job, for want of a better word, um, you're you're um, with the same comrades and colleagues or you're chopping and changing the whole time you sort of you must be building close relationships with people yeah yeah the people that were in november company who i served with we were all very close we'd already pretty much knew each other over the last couple of years uh, with our posting to germany uh, some of us were you know not as close because we were from different companies right and we'd all amal amalgamated into this one november company unit uh, but during that time in Yugoslavia, we've, we forged uh, lifelong friendships, brotherhoods. And, uh, you know, we, it's something that still stands with us today. If you were with November Company and you needed a place to stay, they, you, you knew that any of the other members would, they'd open their homes to you. And you could, you know, I still do that today myself. If there's somebody from my company that's looking for a place or what have you there, my doors are always open to them. Yeah, you must develop really strong relationships in that respect. Mm -hmm. Yes. And um, where did that take you from from there? I mean, you, you've been presumably doing battle and. Yes. Uh, well, we the the uh, the difficult part of of the the United Nations in the former Yugoslavia back in '92 was there were rules of engagement that we were confined to uh, but the the war itself was was escalating to a point where you know and, and i've done a documentary on this and and even uh you know our general at the time has acknowledged you know uh humorously that the the top level of the rules of engagement is chapter six and that's where we're we're allowed to engage forces with our with our armament with our weapons to a point, right? But because things were so crazy, especially uh, once we deployed to Sarajevo to open that airport up to humanitarian aid in July of '92, we developed what we call Chapter Six and a Half. <laughs> <laughs> and the rules. <laughs> 6.5. We, we bent the rules a bit because if we didn't, we, a lot of us wouldn't be here. Uh, you know, there was there was direct attacks on on our positions, and and uh, had we followed the rules of engagement, we we would have been dead. That's harrowing. Got so, to, yeah, just make decisions yeah. that suit the 
the circumstance. Yeah, suit the circumstance, exactly. So we did what we did. We did what we had to do to come home. Wow. You you came home after that battle or or sort of you stay in the forces for a period of time? Well, there is that option and, and that is what happened only it, it took a bit of time before I, I came to that point. So we left uh, the former Yugoslavia. We went back to Germany to our old base. We left all of our equipment, all of our firearms, everything was all left in wow. in, Cro- or in Croatia. Well, because there was a unit that rotated in and they took over. Oh. So, dur- so during that transfer, they took on responsibility of all of our gear and now became theirs. Okay. And we went back to Germany and, and uh, you know, we just operated with what was what was available in in Germany at the time from our our own battalion because remember we were only uh 200 men that went south the the other 700 stayed in Germany right so we came back and we used you know hand-me-downs and so on in true Canadian uh fashion where we're under equipped and and forgotten about by our government uh so that tour because we were actually uh, closing the base in Germany at that time, the government was scaling back all of its uh, European connections. So that base was closing. We we managed to stay another year in Germany. So normally a, a, a rotation in Germany is four years, but because they were going to close the base and and rather than go through the expense of having the, the rotation unit come in and replace us, they just held us in place for another year, save some money there. Winding down for them. Mm. Right. So then we, we got posted back to Canada and I went to Petawawa, Ontario, where I, uh, you know, spent my last year and a bit, or sorry, my last about eight months in the army there. And an, an opportunity came up where you could release within 30 days. They were trying, the government was trying to cut back the size of our forces, which is, again, very typical. They don't want to, they, they all want to be protected, but they don't want to pay for it. Yeah, it's all about the money. Yeah, so they scaled us back. And uh, during that time, I, I opted out. I was out of the army in, in 30 days. Gosh, that must have been a real shock. It was. It, I, there was no transition, you know, uh, facilities. There was no transition education at that time. And I I was not in a good place. You know, we'd we'd come out of this war and, uh, you know, we, we were all messed up. And I don't think there's anybody from November Company or even uh, the Royal 22nd Regiment that would say that the war in Yugoslavia didn't affect them. So most of us came back, or I I don't like to use the general terms, like all of us came back with with some some baggage, but I think that's probably fair to say. I think, yeah. I mean, even the layperson can see that you'd be affected. Everybody would be affected. And to have to come back and just fit into a completely different type of life. Mm-hmm. Well, and keeping in mind, like we were in the middle of a genocide. Yes. So there was there was literally thousands of civilians being executed in the streets daily. Oh, goodness. So and we lived in that. <laughs> so we came home and and uh, we were different. And one of the analogies that I use when, I, when I'm doing some of my public speaking so that it helps people understand is we're like uh, caterpillars at the beginning your caterpillar crawling on the ground you know training for war and so you do this until the war happens and the war is essentially the cocoon so the caterpillar goes into the cocoon and uh, call it a cocoon because even though you can move around 
You can travel, you know, two, three, 400 kilometers in a day. You, you can't just leave. You know, you can't go home. You're, you're in that cocoon. And having to do what you're told. Right. Yes, exactly. You, you can move around, but you, you, can't just, uh, you can't just leave. So when you come out the other side of that cocoon, you are, you're not the same anymore. You're not a caterpillar anymore. You've, you've come out of that, that cocoon and there's been a chemical change in your body. And that's post-traumatic stress or operational stress injury. And so when you come out of that cocoon, you're, you're a moth. Did you feel that straight away? Were you aware that you had changed? Yes. You must have been wandering around in a sort of dreamlike, not as in nice dream, in a, you know, a state of just non-reality. Mm -hmm. In the mental state of being surrounded by death and... Destruction. Just horrible destruction, etc. And told what to do the whole time, more or less, and then trapped in that scenario, and then you're sort of released, free, free floating, really free. Yeah, it it was uh, it was definitely a shock to the system because we when we left, we were and, and here's the other analogy I use on Friday night. We're at home kissing the wife, mm. you know, talking to the kids, petting the dog, and then Saturday morning you're up to your eyeballs in blood and guts and killing, mm. and then. Seven months later, on Friday night, you're up to your eyeballs and blood and guts and killing. And then on Saturday morning, you're back home, kissing the wife, petting the dog and playing with the kids, right? Yeah. And you're, and you're supposed to be normal. <laughs> so, you know, uh, again, there was, no, there was no debrief. There was no mental health, uh, you know, resources at the time. And, and, you know, the tragic part of this is that a lot of us, uh, have struggled and and many guys have suffered, including myself. I I consider myself living with PTSD now. I don't suffer from it. I live with it. Right. But that, that's taken years of of self training and so on to to get to this level. Uh, the tragedy is that so many guys were hurt and and fifteen guys from our tour have have committed suicide. Oh. Out of two hundred, and. Uh, that's such a high rate of but because of that 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 uh, tragedy uh, the government has been held accountable by guys like myself and and other uh, lawsuits that have gone against them you know the equitas uh, lawsuit and so on that that have tried to force the government to be responsible you know like stand up and do the right stuff and so they've they've built uh, the transition uh, they built transition uh, modules essentially so that people can right. come back and, and they get debriefed and they get a cooling off period and they there's mental health resources now. And uh, again, here's the tragic part is most of that is career ending. So as soon as you say, I'm not doing well, they, they immediately ax you and, and throw you in the garbage essentially. So that's the end of that. Career, right. You're deemed as no good for, as a soldier. Right. But which is crazy because people people have this idea that post traumatic stress is is guys crying and cowering in the corner and and you know or they're in a drug induced frenzy like uh, the Vietnam War era mm. veterans I mean that's how they were stereotypically seen as well which was completely ridiculous and and a, and a media way of of putting out this story it, it was sensationalized yes. Uh, 
a lot of soldiers come back and they're not they're not cowering and shaking and 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 can't go and do the job and there are some of those and you know they they definitely need help and but the other ones are are you know the vikings coined them uh, years back and they're called berserkers so they're normal they work normal and they do whatever they need to do during the day they're a little off but they're they do their job and they're they're good soldiers and then when it comes to doing battle they're the ones that that make the difference on the battlefield they're not afraid mm. the only thing they're afraid of is not doing anything it's a robotic state really it's yeah. right so they go no well they go berserk on the battlefield wow right so i mean there's there's lots of different ways of looking at post-traumatic stress and and yeah. identifying who's who in the zoo essentially mm. there's a lot of ignorance about it, including mine unfortunately well and and so with PTSD, it wasn't even acknowledged or recognized by the, by the world until 1982, when the American Medical Association actually had it recognized as a, as a, a medical condition. Mm. So, you know, there's a lot of people that, that are saying, well, I don't have PTSD, I don't want to call it that. And well, you can call it whatever you want, but if you want treatment and you want that to be paid for by Veterans Affairs, you, you're going to live with that diagnosis. I can understand people wanting to keep a lid on it. Mental health is embarrassing for a lot of people and it shouldn't be. It is, it's your health. Right. And, and that's the stigma. Yeah. And then the crazy part about the stigma revolving around mental health is that every single person on this planet deals with their mental health at some level. Yes. And that can be, you know, call it, you know, what you will, but if you're not feeling up to the challenge of the day because you're you're feeling sad or you're feeling uh you know issues of self-esteem and, and self-worth and so on and that that comes down to just waking up on the wrong side of the bed yes it's as much your responsibility to keep your mental health as as it is your physical health exactly so the stigma is built out of people's personal fear yes i don't want to be judged negatively and it's unseen. It's an unseen state that other people mm -hmm. can see if somebody's limping, but you can't see, you know, if they haven't got their head in order for the day or for their life. That's right. Yep, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. That's the common buzz phrase, right? No, I'm fine. Yes. How are you doing today, TJ? Oh, I'm fine. <laughs> Thanks for asking. I'll sort all that out later. Yes, it's true. We naturally put on a front whether we want to or not. So you've yourself or with other people raised awareness that's helped to get strategies in place for soldiers who are sort of left stranded in this limbo yeah yeah they're they're left in, in limbo essentially so that's where the rolling barrage came in for me like i've always been an advocate for mental health and so on uh, within the veteran community and military serving soldiers and i came up with this idea in, in 2006, I went to a, a cross Canada motorcycle rally that was being conducted by some people in Vancouver, British Columbia. So my my chum and I, we we showed up there with the idea that we were going to just ride across Canada. It was the no plan plan. We were just going to follow these guys and and you know support this veterans initiative. Well, we we made it approximately 200 kilometers from Vancouver. Had lunch with them and. <laughs> And we were excited. Hey, okay, so what's the next stop? And that was it. Right. They they hadn't planned anything past that point. So it was anticlimactic to say the least. <laughs> so 
fast forward 10 years to 2016 and I I'm in a position where I've got some time I've got some some funds personal funds to get things up and rolling so I I told my wife uh, Leslie who I love to death uh, I I said to her uh, I'm going to create this cross Canada motorcycle rally and uh you know she she looked at me and she says that's nice dear <laughs> <laughs> because uh, you know we we joke around I, i'm like a i'm like a hot air balloon and that i'm bouncing all over and i'm flying everywhere and she's my little sandbag that keeps me kind of grounded right <laughs> so <laughs> so she thought that might be a pie in the sky idea exactly yeah so how did the name come about well the rolling barrage name comes from the creeping barrage that uh, was part of canada's training and investment in the first world war we were we were considered to be very good tacticians still are and we created a lot of things that are used in battle as as sad as that is to say canadians are quite good at uh, getting the job done <laughs> mm. so uh, whether it be whether it was patrols fighting patrols uh, or this creeping barrage which is in essence uh, an artillery barrage of of munitions that creeps along the battlefield, which allowed uh, the Canadian infantry to follow just behind that timed salvos all the way up Vimy Ridge. And that's how they how they won that battle. Very efficient. It was very efficient. It, uh, it did the job. It pulverized the ridge and, and Canadians took the hill in, in a few hours, nine hours, I believe it was. Good grief. And, uh, you know, that solidified our nation. That, that crowning moment uh, you know, as tragic as it was, it it brought Canada together. So yeah. the rolling barrage, I I wanted to instill that same that same feeling as we were going to ride across Canada. I wanted to bring everybody together, and the 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 sound of the motorcycles crossing the country is like a barrage, and so it just all kind of fit together. Yeah, wow, that's awesome. That's ideal. Thank you. And so, was this aimed at veterans only? Initially, that was my thought, uh, but as as the organizational portion of this behind the scenes all came to to being, uh, I realized that there was an opportunity to involve first responders, so police officers, firefighters, paramedics, people that are are thrust into these situations where everybody else is running away, they're running towards the you know all the danger, and they. Uh, you know, those those trades have been dealing with critical incident stress for decades without any real no appreciation. For that. Yeah. Uh, and essentially the same poor training that the Canadian forces was had dealt with at the same time frame back in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Yeah, No strategies for helping. Right. With, with people who are going through that sort of those situations. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was just a a good plan to involve first responders in in the makeup of of who we're going to ride for and with so the rolling barrage is is about uh combat veterans and about first responders and you know we've had uh we've had some fantastic people uh or should i say we've had people come out and and fantastic stories of healing come out of the ride and that's that's what it's you know for me that's the most gratifying part wow that's amazing did you have great reactions straight away when you started putting the idea out to these people 
uh, it took a bit of time to to assemble the team together initially to get uh, you know some some strong footholds in all the provinces because I, I live in British Columbia and we have nine provinces so it's a and a vast like our, our country is so so vast it's 5,000 kilometers or sorry 5,000 miles from the east to the west and and so each each area has its own trials and tribulations you know for getting across there there are areas where we had to take a 17-hour ferry ride to get from Newfoundland to the mainland of Nova Scotia that in itself is a is a funny story but <laughs> because I joined the infantry for a reason not the navy <laughs> And so you contacted all, all these people and you, they have to be motorcycle riders obviously to join in. This is a motorcycle event. That's, that's not completely accurate. Lots of the people that, uh, that, that helped out and, and are part of the management team, the, they're, they don't ride. Oh. And that's the beauty. Like to be an administrator on this, you don't have to ride. You just have to have specific things that you can bring to the table to, to manage the uh, you know, the, the affairs of the day. Yes. So, um, you know, we have people that, that look at financials, they don't necessarily ride, but they, they can add their expertise in the financial side of the, of the house. A hell of an organization. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of working parts. So how does it work essentially for, um, the people who are the riders, I guess, the participants, they all have to get to one point to start the ride with the, the rolling barrage well we I say it differently to you barrage <laughs> the bear the barrage yes the barrage <laughs> rolling barrage. that's good <laughs> um, <laughs> the beauty of the ride is that you don't have to ride the whole thing you can ride for an hour or you can ride all 20 days oh. it's totally up to you there's levels of registration and you select which days you want to ride in your area and and you set that up that way if you want to do what we call the full pull then you have to arrive in halifax nova scotia by a certain date and you do all the safety briefings and so on that you know for that portion of the of the ride and we have kickstands up in the morning and on the monday and away they go and so during that first day you you might have uh, this year i believe they had 75 riders and some of them had just shown up that day and, and registered that morning and rode, you know, through Yarmouth and, and so on through the province of Nova Scotia. And it just keeps, keeps going. Right across Canada. Right across Canada. Yes. <laughs> How many years has this been happening now? Uh, this year is the sixth annual and they're, they're in Ontario right now and they're heading towards Manitoba. So they've been on the road for approximately 10 what are, what are we at here? What's today's the ninth, I think. So they've been riding for nine days already. Gosh, and how, how long will it take? It, it's scheduled right now for 20 days. So they started on the first and they'll end in, in uh, British Columbia in Vancouver on uh, the 20th. Wow, amazing. Do you know what the mileage is, the total mileage for that? Uh, I don't offhand, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a few kilometers though. Yeah. That's uh, a big ride for that many people. It is. Yeah, it's well. And so right, the first year we had eight riders that rode right across Canada. This year they have 24. Wow. And so presumably you, you sort out, you plan the route, you sort out accommodation. Yes. 
everything's been organized uh, for the riders so that there's they can just come along and enjoy the ride. So they their safety is looked after. There's insurance for the event. Uh, they have uh, block bookings for accommodations so they can get a, a better rate for for hotels. We try to do all of the uh, meals and, and hotels so that they're co-located so that you're not having to, to take a journey across town to get to the restaurant. They're usually side by side. So it, there's there's less opportunity for anybody to be drinking and riding because we don't condone that. Uh, and yeah, they, there's there's evening festivities in most of the uh, locations. The lunch stops are, are set up, fuel stops are set up. Yeah, the, the team has done a, a fantastic amount of work. I'm, I couldn't be happier with everything they've done. Sounds sounds like a lot to get sorted out. And, you know, you're making it easier as well for the, the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we want people to come along and ride. Mm. We want them to enjoy the wind therapy. Mm-hmm. Being amongst people that, that are like them, they understand if they, you know, if they're struggling with, with PTSD or, or what have you, they're, they know that they're in amongst a safe group of people where, where they're all like-minded and there's no stigma attached to their day. Well, that's a great opportunity to come out of your shell a bit, I guess, and express yourself if you are surrounded by other people who experience the same. Well, and, and that is that is the beauty of the ride. That's what they do. They, they, they make friendships that, you know, now they've, people that met on the first year are still friends to this day. And they've, they've managed to, you know, have some, some personal conversations and worked some things out and learn and pass on their knowledge. And, and so it's, it's a very healthy, healthy ride. That's great. And there's, there is the freedom of being on a motorcycle. When you, you are on a motorcycle, you are able to go through many thought processes. You have that time when you're riding and then you're also with people. Right. Yeah. You can roll things over with. Do you have any opportunities for people to stand up and speak or do you not push that side of things come the evening if somebody wants to go through their experiences or anything? Yeah. In the morning, they dedicate a leg of the ride to somebody that's taken their lives to from PTSD. So it, it focuses around, you know, suicide and the loss. But at that same uh, breath, they're also they're also healing in that moment too, because now they're they're honoring the person they bring up and and giving them that little piece of of the ride history as theirs. You know, there there could be one or two or uh, you know, there could be a, a number of, of people they ride for that day. So it's a it's a personal honoring moment. Wow. So that happens. Yeah. So how do people get to join in? What's the best way to contact you? If people are listening to this and they think, I would love to do that. Oh, uh, the rollingbarrage.com is, is our website. And uh, the rollingbarrage at gmail.com is the, uh, the email address. Yeah, and that's, that's the best way to, to contact us. And then uh, registration opens in May. And you'd be um, raising funds during this event for supporting people with mental issues? Yes. Yeah, the, the ride is a fundraiser uh, as well. And it, the, the funds that are, are raised go to uh, support uh, veterans, first responders, and their families with attending uh, various options of uh, mental wellness therapy. Right. Excellent. Well, I'm just astounded. I'm blown away. This is amazing. Yeah, and I think something else that I should note in all of that is that nobody 
on the executive right from you know me as the founder from day one till today none of us take a wage this is all strictly volunteer wow yes that's that is important for people to realize yeah yeah none of the money is used to fill our fuel tanks you know in that regard they're not they're not used for buying us extravagant meals or paying for our cars or any of that none of the none of the money comes back to the group that's running all of this we're all volunteers you're not there to make a profit and it's it's uh yeah chapeau that's great yeah leslie uh it joked around with me the after i'd done the barrage ride for the for the third year across canada she said you know your charity work is driving us into the poor house <laughs> <laughs> and she, she, she was absolutely right so I've, I've taken a step back and i've I've had uh, I've had to put other people in place now, and and we try to cycle them through so that we don't have the same people taking on this financial, this personal financial responsibility. Yes. On and on and on again. So. Yeah. Well, spending so much time on something like this, that's that's got to um, affect your your earning power time as well. Yeah, that's right. You have written a book as well. When did you find time to do that? <laughs> I I actually wrote it on my coffee breaks and lunch breaks at, at my job because what while I'm doing all of this uh, you know I I joke around and say in my spare time I have a full-time job as a as a shovel operator at a copper mine. <laughs> <laughs> so during my uh, my coffee and lunch breaks I wrote my book. It took me about 6 months to write it and it took me another 5 years to get it published. And I was right up to the day where I was going to sign the contract and the the editor called me up and she said, Scott, don't, don't come down to sign the contract tomorrow. And I, I was devastated. And I thought, oh, here we go. Yeah, here we go. Another register, another rejection. And she said, don't, don't come down, wait till, till Friday and you'll understand why. And I was like, okay. So Friday morning, uh, it came out on the news that the, the publisher that I was being picked up by had filed a chapter 11 bankruptcy. So the, the, the lady that I was like, she saved me from getting locked into a contract I wouldn't have been able to get out of. So a couple of weeks later, I was approached by uh, a veteran uh, publisher in the United States and they picked me up. And so Ghost Keepers became official uh, right around the same time, 2017, 2016. And, uh, you know, I, it came out, it was number one in military, Canadian military history and number one in historical biography in Canada. That's fantastic. I was, I was pretty happy to just have it published and then to have two number ones. I was, I was, yeah. it was beautiful. It was nice. I am going to read that ghost keepers. And um, where can we buy that? Is that available on Amazon? Yes, it's available on amazon.ca and amazon.com both. And I believe it's also available on Kindle and that sort of thing like eBooks. Right. So people can look that up as well. Well done. Wow. That's amazing. And, um, what sort of motorcycle are you riding when you go on your rolling garage <laughs> on the first the first uh the inaugural run indian motorcycles stepped up and they sponsored the ride and they they provided me with a, a chieftain a chieftain dark horse so i rode that across canada the very first year in 2017 and i liked it so much i bought my own i bought a roadmaster in uh 2018 <laughs> yeah so i'm, I'm currently riding uh an indian roadmaster Brilliant. Oh, it's it's smooth. It's I mean the 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 engineers at, at Indian really put their hearts into into redefining uh, cruising motorcycles when they when they built this Roadmaster. 
for 2018 and and they've of course developed since with the with the newer ones that are coming out everybody's watching the bagger races right now between indian and harley so yeah how exciting <laughs> is that that race is all yeah yeah so so yeah I, that's indian's been very good to me and very good to the to the rolling barrage they uh gave us a third motorcycle or sorry a second motorcycle to ride in 2019 great and we vetted uh a bunch of different veterans we we basically put a an ad out that said why do you think you should be the veteran to ride this motorcycle so they had to give us a 500 word essay so we we you know spent hours reading all of these different stories and finally selected an individual and he got to ride a, a brand new indian dark horse uh from halifax to burnaby vancouver wow yeah so so again the indian motorcycles has been a, a big supporter of the rolling barrage Fantastic. I'm pleased to hear that. It's been a very good relationship. And I'd, I'd also note, too, that that the other brands of, of motorcycles have also, you know, played their part individually, like by uh, dealerships across Canada, whether it's uh, Maniac Moto in uh, Quebec or, you know, Gasoline, Harley, Gasoline Alley, Harley-Davidson in Kelowna, BC, you know, they've all stepped up, you know, in the motorcycle community, if all the dealerships and, and all the brands are doing well, and everybody's riding everything then motorcycling in general is is maintaining its pulse in in north america that's awesome yeah the camaraderie is amazing in the motorcycle world mm -hmm. yeah i don't care what you ride as long as you're riding yeah exactly anything any anything on two any two wheels mm -hmm. that's right <laughs> well even trikes well we're good with that too it's all about getting out there in the wind right yeah actually yes trikes are good in many ways yeah like trikes right now are actually 15 percent of the market share like people are, are the there's a you know a demographic that's aging and they still want to be out in the wind that's it yeah i was gonna say we're, you know we're all getting a bit well you don't look as old as me but we're all getting a bit older and uh i think you look lovely dear <laughs> <laughs> thank you i asked for that didn't i <laughs> um you know if it gets to the stage where where you're unable to ride on two wheels and the trikes are out there for you yeah and there is a big uh, community of trikers and uh, they are motorcycles yes absolutely to take you back to the ptsd mm -hmm. side of things what would you say to somebody now just coming out of the forces suddenly do you public speak to impart this sort of information to people coming out of the forces it's all right to put your hand up and to admit that you're not able to behave what is deemed normal these days that's the big one right there yeah yeah when you look at somebody like even take myself out in public you would never know that behind these eyes there's there's been heartaches there's been troubles there's been addiction there's been all of that stuff and that's the message that is the most important to me is that you can come through this don't give up put your hand out and and ask for help and, and or find the help. The resources are there now. Like there are, we're overwhelmed with resources now. And that's a good thing. That is good. You know, compared to uh, 20, 30 years ago when there was like absolutely nothing and you were left to, to you know, your own avails. And for the most part, you know, that just leads to uh, risky behavior, whether you're racing motorcycles out on the street or jumping out of aircraft, you know, with parachutes or uh, hang gliding or alcohol abuse or, you know, gambling, all that kind of stuff. They're all things that come from trauma. 
and and trauma doesn't necessarily just come from having a military background either there's you know there's natural disasters flooding fires tornadoes people are traumatized by that stuff daily there's sexual assault you know there's there are so many different ways for a person to be traumatized and so it's important to to know that there are resources out there and not to give up don't stick the gun in your mouth you know don't put the rope around your neck you you want the pain to end and that's and we get that you know but that's not the answer. Is there a one go-to place that you can tell us about now for anybody listening who wants to reach out? That would be, it would be difficult for me to say that just based on the fact that this podcast will be heard, I'm assuming, around the world. So, I mean, every every nation has its own uh, trauma, you know, specialties and, and, you know, places they can reach out to in, in their countries. And, and so to give you know, credence to one and not the rest is, I think is, I don't know as it's effective, but uh, there are definitely mental health uh, resources out there. And, and Google is a, is a wonderful, you know, thing that's right at your fingertips. The, the, the most important part in that message is that reach out. And that, that's just as simple as typing in a, a mental health resource in your area and then making the phone call. I, I think that it's important to note in, in the rolling barrage is that everyone is welcome. You don't have to ride. You can come out and support. You can, there are ways to donate. There's a donate link if they're interested. Uh, the, the, the riders like to see people come out. They like to see people lining the streets and, and welcome, welcoming them to their communities. Welcome them. Know there's an awareness. Yes. Yeah, I think that that's very important because that shows that the message is getting out there. Yes. And it is also so that it's not only the, the people, the responsibility of the people who are traumatized, it's people around them who have to look out for right. yeah. signs and, and offer help even before it's needed. Yeah, find that understanding. Yeah, fantastic. Well, we, I'll definitely put that donate button on here as well. So anybody listening, please go and have a look at the the, the huge... <laughs> machine that scott casey has created <laughs> and <laughs> donate every little bit helps as they say absolutely it does yeah it's been great speaking with you thanks so much for coming along yeah no and thank you for the invitation and, and it's good to see you again and and i hope that uh we can make it back down there and, and uh have another visit <laughs> awesome